Today's episode is brought to you by Grove Press and The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom, available now wherever books are sold. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. How do we respond to the immensity of suffering that confronts us and overwhelms us without losing our compassion or our sanity? Tim Desmond, an esteemed Buddhist philosopher who was lectured on psychology at Harvard and Yale, taught mindfulness in all 50 states and studied closely with Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, helps us to try to answer these questions in his new book, How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World, Mindfulness Practices for Real Life. He has previously published two books on self-compassion and now joins us for a conversation about his new book. Tim, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. We hear the term mindfulness a lot. And these days, and your notion is a bit different than I think the common currency. Tell us how you view the notion of mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the issue of the word gets a little confusing. Like for me, what I'm actually interested in is developing my ability and sort of like helping people develop their ability to have more joy in life mm. and especially to be able to be present with suffering, to be able to, to face our suffering, to be able to, to face problems in the world in a way that we can actually be helpful, in a way that we can actually kind of do something positive about them. And so the question is like this capacity to face difficult truths, the capacity to sort of look at our own uh, pain in a way that'll actually free us from it. The My teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, the word he uses to talk about your ability to do that is mindfulness. Mm. But that word has come to mean a much sort of more, a much simpler thing in a lot of other contexts. So explain the difference, because yeah. when I think of mindfulness, I think yeah. of the um, way in which meditation is done, where yeah. you're shutting down your mind, where you're removing yourself from anything day to day and certainly from your suffering. But yeah. in reading the book and and listening to what you say or Thich Nhat Hanh says, yeah. it's actually immersing yourself in the suffering. For me, my um, meditation can be a lot of different things. The uh, um, neuroscience researcher Richard Davidson, he uses just the word mental training mm. as kind of synonymous for meditation because basically you can train your mind in whatever quality you want it to have. Like you can train your mind to be more anxious or you mm. can train your mind to have more equanimity. So the question is like what – what kind of person do you want to be in the world? Mm. And then your meditation practice, your training becomes about trying to develop those qualities. And for me, the kind of person that I want to be in the world is the person who in any context, especially in difficult contexts, is able to stay fully present and compassionate and able to sort of 
be of help. And, you know, Tim, when I was reading the book, you know, a lot of times I think people think those who evolve in the way that you have to have this calm, compassionate way of thinking about the world came from a circumstance that was easy-beasy, you know. And yet, when I read about your background, you grew up in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, You had a single mom. She was an alcoholic. What was it that you think gave you or gives one the resilience to move from circumstances that could have buried you? Yeah. Yet you went on to college. You responded to what you were learning. What what do you think helps make – Help made you that way or help makes one that way? Yeah. I think so many people go through really similar circumstances and they end up coming out radically differently. Yeah. I mean, when I look at my own life, there's a saying in Buddhist psychology that all compassion comes from having suffered Mm. and that great compassion comes from great suffering. Mm. And the idea is like if we think about people in our world that for us symbolize great compassion, people like Nelson Mandela or the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh, they're people who've suffered really greatly. Mm. But the issue is not all suffering turns into compassion. Yeah. Like all compassion comes from having suffered. So the question is how how is it possible or how can we know if how to – turn that suffering into, rather than being overwhelmed by it, turning it into strength and resilience. In my life, I think I think a lot of it's luck. Mm. A lot of it is sort of being exposed to ways of thinking, ways of practicing, having the good fortune to learn a little bit about being able to, to sort of face your suffering in particular ways that actually help can turn it into an opportunity to grow and, and, and thrive. Like for me, my mother started going to AA when I was about eight years old and just sort of the idea that you could decide you want to be different mm. and then do that. I feel like was like really changing. Cause you me. know, I thought about that you in, in one of the chapters, I think it was called the art of unhappiness. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about, I think his name was Barry. Yeah. Describe Barry for us. So basically this this idea of a, a friend from college who first semester freshman year, he um, had never had to clean up after himself before probably. Um, so his dorm room just became really disgusting really quickly. <laughs> and then rather than show up and actually kind of clean it up, what he started doing is just sleeping in the common room. Mm. And just avoiding it. And it's sort of a metaphor for how a lot of us deal with our own suffering, with a lot of us deal with our own stuff like that, mm-hmm. that to stop and pay attention to how we're actually feeling moment to moment can be really uncomfortable. It can be really uncomfortable because we've spent our whole lives avoiding it. Right. But if we actually want to feel at home in ourselves, then we need to be able to kind of tolerate the mess in order to start learning how to clean it up. Because there are some people that we all know where it seems like their unhappiness yeah. is their best friend. Yeah. And they almost worry about yeah. losing that as part of their identity. What what sort of advice do you give someone who seems stuck in that place where their best friend is self-pity? Yeah. So as a psychotherapist, <laughs> so for me, it's like the first thing is like, if some, the, the big question is, 
if somebody has that, is there a part of them that also wants to be happier? Because mm. I, I have no interest in trying to tell somebody how they want to be. Yes. But if That's somebody – part of what you yeah. teach in the book. Yeah. But if somebody's saying, I really wish that I could be happier, but every time I try, there's this other part of me that's like – I don't want to let it go. For me, it's about having compassion for both of those parts of yourself. Mm. So the part of me that wants to be happy, it's easy to be like, okay, yeah, I, I, I see the beauty in that. The part of me that's like, I don't want to let go of my anxiety. I don't want to let go of my depression. Mm. How can I listen to that part of me in a compassionate way to be able to understand that it probably has – maybe sort of a twisted, but a positive intention. Like mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. for a lot of us, like anxiety is a way to try to keep bad things from happening. For a lot of us, sort of unhappiness is a way to try to get other people to pay attention to us. Mm. And so there can be a part of you that's like, I'm scared. No one's going to care about me. No one's going to pay attention to me if I'm, if I'm not complaining all the time. Share with us one of the things that was, you know, you have a lot of language in the book about how to exhibit what you call, I believe you call it the compassion of equanimity. Yeah. And you've, you've got a lot of practical advice around what that looks like. Share with us how to do that because yeah. what, what I was struck by was the way that you could turn a conversation with someone yeah. where they felt so heard yeah. that it allows the the openness of them to reveal itself and change the direction of a conversation. Yeah. So share with us how that what that looks like in practical language. Yeah. So for for me, like the idea of like compassion without equanimity is the idea that I really care about you being happy. And anything, anytime you're not happy, it kills me. And like, I, like I freak out. Mm -hmm. Equanimity without compassion is sort of this idea that like I, I, you're always upset about something and I don't, I've stopped caring. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. Out of here. Yeah. <laughs> compassion with equanimity is this ability to be able to basically to able to sort of face you and say, I really do care about your happiness. But I also know that you're going to be upset about things sometimes and that doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of describing a way of relating to somebody. And when you can – the idea is in terms of like practice – like ways of developing that, it's it's really kind of holding these two things. It's practicing the – first, the ability that I do care about your happiness, mm. that I want you to be – And that's powerful. Yeah. Just, just, just getting in touch with that. I mean if yeah. you spend – two minutes thinking about someone you care about and just consciously realizing that you want them to be happy and not to suffer, you'll find that it transforms how you're feeling in your body. Just like there, mm -hmm. are, there are these common phrases in Buddhism of like, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be free from suffering. And just saying those over and over, they can radically mm -hmm. transform how you're feeling. But the problem is you're not always going to be happy. You're not always going to be safe and you're not always going to be free from suffering. So also practicing that. It's it for me it's kind of like a mm -hmm. even though you're not always going to be happy, that's what I want for you. Right. Even though you're not always going to be safe, that's what I want for you. I'm sort of accepting the reality like the existential reality it's not always going to happen. 
But it's not about really wanting you to always be happy or always be safe. It's more about touching the humanity in me mm-hmm. that wants that for you. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about how many people feel lost today, yeah, that as I read the book, you're reminded of just how powerful it is for someone to think you are caring, yeah. listening, yeah. and want them to be happy. And, and in the book, you remind us of that over and over again. We'll be back after a short break from our sponsors. I'd like to encourage you to pick up a book called The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom. It's available now from Grove Press. It's set in a shotgun house in New Orleans East. And The Yellow House is brilliant, haunting, and it's an unforgettable memoir about the profound pull of family and a home. Broom's book tells the story of a hundred years of her family and their relationship to a home in a neglected area of one of America's most legendary cities. The Yellow House is available now wherever books are sold, and I encourage you to take a look at it. Here's here's the other piece I want to get to. Is the world more or less fucked up than it used to be? Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, you read some books like by Steven Pinker and he talks about, no, there's less violence, there's less poverty, the world is. But it sure doesn't seem that way. People seem more anxious. They seem more overwhelmed. So is it or isn't it more fucked up? And then you see a study that like, you know, Western civilization will be gone by 2050. Yeah. And how do you put those things together? Yeah. How do you put them together? So for me, what it comes down to, I feel like this is a really interesting question and I I think about it a lot, but I think that ultimately what it comes down to is like, what, what would it change for you? Like, what would it change for you if you, if you felt like the world was getting better? Every, you know, every decade. Would I check felt, out and say, yeah, or, or, we're or good. yeah. Or what would it change for you if you felt like Western civilization is going to be gone by 2050? Like how mm. would that impact how you're going to live your life? Mm. There in, there's a scientific uh, principle of underdetermination, which means that in every data set, every data set can be interpreted in many different ways. There's, there's always multiple theories that will fit a data set. So it's so when you have uh, these complete uh, sort of competing narratives to try to explain what's happening, the world's getting better, the world's getting worse. There's not really a way to judge which is more true. Mm. So the question is sort of like, okay, well, who do I want to be? How do I want to live? Regardless, regardless, regardless. Yeah, yeah. And then getting really clear about that, and then kind of whether the world's getting better or worse, like. Being anchored in like whether the world's getting better or worse, this is the person that I want to be in. Mm, whether I have a day or I have 10 days or yeah. I've got a thousand days. Yeah. Tim, one of the things that occurred to me, I listened to a couple of interviews that you had done and I was struck by the calmness and humility of just your voice. I mean, it emanated from that. And I was trying to contrast that with using an expletive in yeah. your title. How'd you, how'd you decide to go in that direction? Because even the consonants yeah. seem at odds with how you speak. Oh, I, I, I swear <laughs> like a sailor. 
Um, I, my, my six year old swears like a sailor. I, uh, like that's it. That, that's it. I mean, so I think what it was was my, um, amazing editor at, at Harper One, yeah. um, Sydney Rogers. So I originally had pitched a different book. I pitched more of a niche kind of niche book, uh, mindfulness for people who don't meditate. Yeah. And that was a good title too. Thank you. This is a good title as well. Yeah. So, um, so we were talking about it and Sydney was like, I really like what you're writing. If you were writing for everybody, what would you want to say mm. rather than just people who are like interested in mindfulness, but not interested in enough to meditate? I see. If you wanted a, if you had a message for the whole world, this is a wider be? net. Yeah. So what would your message for the whole world be? And it would be really just like the world is fucked up and we want to stay human. Mm. Because what I liked about that was yeah. it, the thing that made that appealing to yeah. me as a reader or as a person is you weren't trying to say everything's coming up roses yeah. and therefore get over yourself. Yeah. It is much more grounded in the reality yeah. that we're all living in. And I think the title, but I was struck by the use of a yeah. swear word. I thought, okay. Uh, yeah. Although in on the on the cover it does have an asterisk, I guess you're not supposed I, to. I fought him really hard on that. Actually, you can't I, do it. Can no, you not do it? I uh, so I I was talking I was uh, I was talking with Dave Eggers at, at a thing he was doing, and I was he was looking at it and kind of giving me some feedback, and uh -huh. he was just like, "Get his first thing was get rid of the asterisk." And then, um, but you can, is it legally they, you can't? I think it was like bookstores and things like that. Yeah, I back. have a bookstore. I'd put it on the there. Shelf. You go, great. Well, yeah, I'll, we'll we'll let we'll I let get the complaints publishers though. know. Yeah. I mean, I get complaints from grandparents who brought yeah. who bought a picture book for their kids, and there's a kid picking their nose in it. So yeah. you can yeah. imagine how they would feel having yeah. yeah fucked without the asterisk on yeah. the bookshelf. But we would do it. We would do it anyway. Good to know. It, towards the end of the book, you talk about your world is not merely one of natural calm. As yeah. you say, your practice today is less about how to walk on water and more about how not to drown. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, and you have a lot of practical suggestions in yeah. the book. What do you think are the baby steps that someone who's even a little cynical about this might take to begin trying to be more human and have more compassion? Yeah. I think ultimately it comes down to motivation. Mm. Like I think the the thing to really think about is like, is this important to you? Yeah. And like before you start, you know, before you buy a meditation cushion and start counting your breaths or anything like that, like just get clear about why, like what do you want? Mm. Like Why does this matter to you? Who do you want to be in the world and how does that fit into your life? Well, and maybe – Tim, that's exactly the first question. Yeah. Is for as people are listening yeah. to our conversation or reading the book, to start with that. Yeah. Like, what is motivating you? What do you want your days and your, and therefore your life to be like? I there's a quote from Seneca about mm. um we actually live a very small part of our lives. And yeah. I think what your book helps us do is think about living more of that life yeah. by being present, although that feels like an, another cliche. So let's say the first step is yeah. what motivates you to do that. So now let's say I'm motivated. Yeah. 
I want to be compassionate. Yeah. I want to have a sense of humanity. Yeah. What What are some of the practical ways for me to start to achieve that goal? Yeah. So the, the it's like the first practice, and this is something that people you know are you know people like Malcolm Gladwell are now talking about with deliberate practice, and it's something that's been part of Buddhist teaching for thousands of years. Start with what's easy. You you, you clarify the quality that you want to develop in yourself. So mm-hmm. if you're saying like compassion and humanity, so what can you do that brings up that quality in you? Like what are, what's a situation that kind of brings that kind of feeling up in you? So maybe if you're picturing your niece and like when you picture her and you get in touch with how you feel about her, that brings out like the person you want to be. Like that's how you want to feel about mm-hmm. more people in the world. So you start with that easy practice. I feel like you're psychic because my niece is exactly who I think about for that circumstance. That's very, (laughs) that feels like eerie to me. (laughs) Yeah. So you picture her and you let that, the energy that comes up in you when you Mm. picture her and how you feel about her, let it fill you. And you let yourself like really feel as, as much love and care as you do about this one person for whom it's easy to feel that about. And you practice and then it, it gets easier to touch that. And then all you'll need is half a breath and visualizing her for a moment to bring that up in you. And then you start making it a little more difficult. You start thinking about. The most toxic person I know. I would say, I I would say that would be like, that's step eight. So step two is like other kids Mm. that are a similar age that aren't part of your family. Can I feel the same way about them? Right. Other adults that haven't done anything wrong to me. If I picture my niece in the middle of them Mm -hmm. and then there's all of these other people that I don't know. Can I have the same desire for their happiness kind of all at once? And then we grow out to eventually the mm, most the toxic, toxic person. The toxic person. But yeah, I, I don't I don't like to start there because it's like then it sometimes it's too big it, a leap. Well, for most people it's too big a leap. At least for me, it's too big a leap. Yeah. Well, if it's too big a leap for you, then yeah. it's too big a leap for most of us. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like I don't want a practice that feels hard. I don't want to practice that feels like work. I want to practice that I want my practice to feel good. Mm-hmm. To be like to be something that I can really enjoy. So your son is eight? Is six. Is six. Yeah. Do you teach him any of this? Do you how do you communicate yeah. it, this notion and way of living to a little kid like that? Yeah. I I may it's mainly about practicing myself. We I live at a at a retreat center. So in that New makes Hampshire. it more accessible and part of his life. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, I live at a place called Morning Sun Mindfulness Center in, in near Keene, New Hampshire. He grows up with other other kids and sort of like like meditation is sort of like this, you know, thing that happens. But I think more than anything, like I, I'm not that he, he he sometimes likes to practice meditation before bed. But what he's doing, you know, he's just sort of like he's adopting a posture. It, like it's more like signaling. Like I'm not – it's not – I actually kind of more worry about that part for him. What, what I want for him is the authenticity that comes from it. Like what I want from him mm-hmm. in terms of like how to make this part of his life. That it's coming 
from inside of him that 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 he feels comfortable yeah at, with actually how he how he feels and so mainly it's kind of being around adults who are really authentically human with him mm-hmm. and like i don't mean this kind of like fake people that act like they're peaceful all the time but yeah. i mean people who are actually comfortable with the full spectrum of what it is to be a human and having that those kind of role models around him. Like mm. that's really kind of what I care about. And then he'll be an interesting person, whatever it is. However it goes. Yeah. So Tim, in the book, you talk about the process as you were evolving, that yeah. you were dealing with your wife who had stage four uh, colon cancer. Yeah. And in the book, you uh, talk about that sadly in December of 18, yeah. uh, she passed away and you Close your book by saying, if she could, I believe Annie would ask us to remember her by loving fearlessly and doing everything we can to support people who are suffering. And that's exactly what I plan to do. And I would say, Tim, that is what you've done with this book. I think for people that are not on this path yet and for people who are on this path, that it both fertilizes the ground of people thinking about it and then becomes very practical about how you can embark on this process. So I want to thank you for sharing that with us and uh, joining me today on Just the Right Book. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.